This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. Six minutes past nine o'clock. I'm in Hayesville, North Carolina. Hope it's a beautiful day for you. Welcome to a Tuesday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. 21st day of February 2023. The sun is out here this morning. It was a uh, rainy evening, but the sun's out now, and it looks like it's going to be a beautiful day here in western North Carolina. Hope you are having a good one. Uh, We've got uh, some things to get to this morning. Um, Before we get to uh, action on the fields, courts, uh, whatever, last night, ice, um, there was a, uh, a letter sent yesterday by 34 nations signed off by government officials uh, asking the International Olympic Committee uh, to clarify its position on neutrality, uh, et cetera, as, as the IOC is trying to find a way to allow Russian and Belarusian athletes into the Paris Olympics coming up in 2024. There is a real possibility that there could be a boycott of this Olympics if Russia, uh, Russian and Belarusian athletes are allowed into the Olympics, especially in light of, of what, you know, Vladimir Putin yesterday in his uh, essentially what's the State of Union address for him uh, in Russia uh, basically said that uh, Ukraine and the United States started this war. <laughs> Which, you know, and you listen to that and then you look at the crowd and everybody's clapping and, you know, you watch the news reports and you and they interview people on the street and the people there really believe the stuff that he's spewing. It's unbelievable. But, you know, Russia has done such a good job of controlling the narrative and, and limiting the access that their people have to certain things and certain news uh, so that the truth never comes out. Now, obviously, there are uh, there are people in the country that, that know what's going on, but getting enough people to buy into it is the problem. And the problem is Vladimir Putin is a dictator. The, the, the quote-unquote democratic elections in uh, Russia, we all know, are a sham. You know, because I don't care what country you're in. I don't care whether it's, you know, uh, Tahiti, uh, United States, Germany, uh, you know, whatever. Nobody wins an election with 95% of the vote. Nobody. And that's the kind of thing you see these and you see what uh, uh, Lukashenko, the uh, the dictator in Belarus, you know, you see that, you know, he wins 97 percent of the vote. No, that's not possible. No one is loved that much. The greatest presidents in the United States were never loved that much. I mean, my God. And yet we're supposed to believe this. Anyway, I digress. 
Here's the problem, and you know the IOC wants to let him in, saying that the athlete shouldn't be punished just because of the name on the passport uh, of the country that they represent, and that they should be allowed in and to compete as neutral athletes with no uh, identifying marks of of you know where they're from. Here's the problem: you cannot separate the athletes in those countries from the country itself. Why? Because sports and politics in Russia and Belarus go hand in hand. The athletes in those countries are supported and trained and paid by their governments because their governments see them as propaganda tools because when they go to international competitions and they win, it's another example of how great Belarus and Russia are. So you cannot say, you cannot separate those athletes from that country. In the United States... Yes, we have, you know, a U.S. Olympic Committee, and and there is some training and and some uh, things that are paid for um, through government agencies in a way, but most of it's private donations. But our athletes are allowed to say whatever they want to say, and you would be hard-pressed to get a majority of the athletes uh, to agree on anything. It's completely different in Russia and in Belarus. So I don't know how the IOC does this. I don't know how they allow, you know, with, with this war now stretching in to its second year and with the comments that Putin made yesterday and basically warning the world that, you know, uh, <laughs> we got nukes, we're not afraid to use them, and pulling out of the, the only uh, uh, remaining treaty, nuclear treaty between the United States and Russia, pulling out of that, it's just like, you know, they're thumbing their nose at the rest of the world. And another report came out yesterday that Russia has plans by the year 2030 to basically take over Belarus and enfold it into a Russian union, they're calling it. This is just Vladimir Putin's attempt to rebuild the USSR because he wants to take over uh, other former parts of the Soviet Union like Moldova, uh, uh, there's some others that are, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, but there are others, uh, Latvia, you know, that he wants to fold back into a Russian Union, a USSR. And so, you know, at some point, somebody's got to step up and say no. You know, and that's that's part of what's being done on the battlefield in Ukraine with all the you know, these major uh, governments getting involved. I mean, and of the 34 nations that signed this statement that was sent to the IOC, it included Britain, France, Canada, Germany, and the United States. By the way, those five countries accounted for about a fifth of all the athletes in the Tokyo Games. So, you know... Uh, you know, Poland and Latvia and Lithuania and Denmark have all suggested a boycott. Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland are all 
countries right now that that Russia has its sights on. So stay tuned, but it's, uh, you know, hopefully cooler heads prevail when it comes to nuclear weapons. But when it comes to the Olympics, you know, I know it's supposed to be a non-political uh, thing, but it, look, it is a political tool. There is no doubt about it. It has been for years. Adolf Hitler, you know, in 1936 in the Berlin Games, it was a complete propaganda uh, tool for Nazi Germany. Of course, Jesse Owens threw a big monkey wrench into that with a black man going to to uh, Nazi Germany and, and winning gold medals. But uh, be that as it may, the, look, the Olympics have been political for a long, long time now. And uh, do not be surprised if there are countries that boycott the Olympics in Paris. Which would be interesting, by the way, if France decides to boycott the Olympics that they're hosting. I don't think that's going to happen, but that'd be pretty funny. So, all right, let's get into uh, some of the things that happened uh, around sports last night. Um, the Duke men's basketball team picked up its third straight win last night, improved to 20-8 and eight on the season, 11-6 and six in the ACC. They probably cemented um, their berth in the NCAA tournament last night, their 20th win, playing in the ACC, which is a pretty good league. Um, look, they had if they didn't win this game last night, they were in big trouble because uh, they beat Louisville 79-62. Louisville's got two wins in the ACC all year. They're 4-24. and uh, And Duke actually trailed by nine early in this game, then went on a 13-0 run uh, to take a 22-18 lead. And uh, that was the end of that, and they pulled away. So Duke probably is in good shape. Uh, they've got Virginia Tech on Saturday. Then they've got Georgia Tech games that they should be able to win. Look, uh, Duke was the number seven preseason pick. And yet they find themselves technically on the bubble right now. And look, if they if they stumble in a couple of these games and you know get bounced in the first round of the ACC tournament, they could be in trouble. But I think they have enough quality wins that they're going to be okay. But the team that is not okay right now is one of the other teams in North Carolina, and that's the University of North Carolina, the preseason number one pick in men's basketball. Now, we've seen the number one teams have been dropping like flies um, this year. I think we've had uh, nine different number ones this year. A couple of teams have... uh, have uh, had it a couple of times. Houston's the number one now in the latest poll, back at number one. But North Carolina was a preseason number one. And I can't remember the last time a preseason number one has struggled this badly. Look, and it's not like North Carolina is under 500, but they, they're 16 and 11. They are 8 and 8 in the ACC. This is a team. Um, that beat Duke in the Final Four to end Mike Krzyzewski's career. Yet this North Carolina team that was the preseason number one does not have a single Quadrant One win, which is the the basically the top teams uh, that are you know they they have it all tiered. They do not have. One win against opponents that are in that quad one. That's how bad it's been. 
Um, and they've got a game this weekend against Notre Dame. Notre Dame is not that great. If they lose to Notre Dame this weekend, they're done. You know, they'll be uh, then they'll be wondering if they're going to make the NIT or not. They are in real peril of not making the NCAA tournament. Now, I would expect they're going to beat Notre Dame. Notre Dame, I think, is 2-14 and 14 in the ACC. So, you know, they should win that one. But they've got some tough games coming up down the stretch. I mean, they may need to win all their remaining games. They mean, that means they're going to have to beat Duke, who probably is in the tournament after last night. They're going to have to beat Virginia, who's already locked up a spot in the in the NCAA tournament, without a doubt, no matter what happens from here on out. And then they have to beat Notre Dame and Florida State. And I don't. They're not beating. There's. They're not. They're not beating Virginia. And I don't think they're going to beat Duke. So you know, you could be looking at a North Carolina team that goes into the ACC tournament at 10 and 10 in the conference tournament in the conference and 18 and 13 overall. And then the only way they're getting in after that is they would have to run the table in the ACC tournament and win the whole thing. Not happening. There are heads that are going to roll. UB Davis uh you know look, he's a guy that he's a legend at North Carolina as a player. But when he took over from Roy Williams, much was expected. You know, um, he took him to a title game in his first year, but now people are going to wonder what the heck is going on. Preseason number one, and they have never been above 18 in the NCAA, or the AP poll um, you know, so it's a mess. It is a mess. You know, and then there's another North Carolina team that's probably going to get in. NC State is 21-7, and seven, just like, you know, just like Duke with 21 wins, 11 wins in conference. They're probably getting in. So, you know, just think about how bad it's going to look when NC State – and Duke get in, yet the University of North Carolina does not. Yikes. Yikes. Um, you know, and this is the time of year. This is the fun time of year because every game, you know, becomes so important. Look at what, you know, the University of Connecticut, a team that early in the season everybody thought was one of the best teams in the country and fell as far as I think number 21 in the poll. I think they've gotten back up to 16 now. And it looks like UConn has righted the ship. But, that you know, UConn still has some games left. UConn's in. No matter what happens from here on out, UConn is in. The Big East probably already has four schools that are going to get in the NCAA tournament. Providence will probably be the fifth. They've got 20 wins. They've got some quality wins. Um, but, you know, the Big East is pretty good. 
But Providence is still technically on the bubble. They'll probably get in. The only other team really in the Big East that you can think about would be Seton Hall. But, you know, Seton Hall is barely over 500. They're 15 and 12, 9 and 8 in conference play. And unless they beat Xavier at home on Friday, a tall task. If they do that, though, you know, they put themselves in a position that maybe they can get in, you know, and, and get off the bubble. But they're going to have to uh, they're going to have to pull off some some big upsets down the stretch. Uh, another team that's going to have to pull off some upsets in the Big Ten, uh, Maryland. You know, they're kind of on the bubble right now. They're they're over five hundred in conference play, um, and they've got some good wins early in the season. And the the big win for them, they beat Purdue by fourteen last week. That might have gotten them in, but there's still some work to do. And my old friend Steve Peichel, who is the head coach at Rutgers. They are also uh, on the bubble. They got a big win on Saturday against Wisconsin. Um, but they're going to have to probably uh, win a couple more games. They're in decent shape at 17-10, and 9-7 in conference play. And if you look at their metrics, not just their record, they're probably going to be okay. Um, and uh, Steve Peichel is, uh, is a great coach. Great coach, former player at UConn, assistant coach at UConn. He was the head co- assistant coach at Central Connecticut when I was there. Um, uh, head coach at uh, Stony Brook down in New York. Got them into the NCAA tournament and parlayed that into a job at Rutgers, and he has done a wonderful job there, wonderful job. So that's where we're at. But, uh, you know, sitting down here in North Carolina, there is a lot of gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands as a team that was supposed to cruise – through this season in the University of North Carolina is in big, big trouble. I mentioned the AP poll. The uh, new poll came out yesterday. Uh, Houston back at number one. It's the third time this year they've been at number one. Um, They are on a seven-game winning streak right now, so they are in a pretty good uh, spot. Uh, Alabama last week's number one. uh, Only dropped one spot after losing to Tennessee. Um, so the, and they still got seven first place votes, so they are number two. Kansas climbed up seven spots; they are now three in the poll. Uh, UCLA is four, and then Purdue slipped two spots uh, to five. As I said, UConn has moved up uh, to sixteen. Uh, Tennessee um, is now number eleven uh, in the poll of the uh, teams in uh, with uh, local interest down here in North Carolina. As far as women's basketball goes. Um, no surprise, South Carolina is still number one. Uh, got that overtime win against Mississippi on Sunday that they needed, 27-0. A uh, little bit of shuffling along the top. Uh, UConn now number four. Stanford is the uh, number three team. Uh, Indiana is second in the poll. They got uh, one first-place vote. South Carolina got 27 of the 28. Uh, somebody voted for Indiana. It probably was Don Staley from South Carolina. I don't know, but uh, I don't understand that. But uh, uh, Iowa was number sixth, and then uh, they're followed by Maryland, Utah, Virginia Tech, and Notre Dame to round out the top ten. It is 25 minutes past the hour. We're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to talk some baseball when we come back. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. 27 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call here on a Tuesday morning. A reminder, uh, no show for the rest of the week. I am heading north uh, to Connecticut um, for uh, the rest of the week and through the weekend, but we'll be back here uh, on Monday. 37 days, by the way, till opening day 
uh, in Major League Baseball. Uh, spring training games start for the Boston Red Sox on Friday. They play, I think, Northeastern University, their uh, annual game to start uh, the spring, and then they will take on the Atlanta Braves on Saturday with their first Major League competition. Um, uh, look, there has been a lot of talk about the disconnect between the owners of the Boston Red Sox and the fans. Um, not just the owners, the uh, the management in general, because you'd have to ha- put Hein Bloom in there. And, you know, the disconnect with, you know, that the, they don't care about the fans and, you know, they don't care about winning. They care about the bottom line, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's worse than <laughs> – look, it's not just a disconnect between the fans and the ownership group and the front office. There's a disconnect – between the members of the ownership group. You know, we talked yesterday on the show about uh, John Henry. He had a uh, an email back and forth uh, with Jen McCaffrey of The Athletic and uh, uh, I can't remember who the other – I think it was Sean McAdam. Uh, and, and being asked questions and uh, answering about how he, he feels there's a false narrative around the Red Sox about how um, – they don't care about winning and, you know, that they're not spending money and yada, yada, yada. And um, that, that, that they just, you know, they're, they just don't care about the fans. And so, and any, and any went on to talk about the, the winter uh, thing that they had that was in Springfield this year when they, the owners actually got booed by the fans people that paid money to attend this Winterfest booed John Henry. And he was like, well, you know, the, you know, but people don't talk about the standing ovation we got at the end. It's just, t- just totally discounting the actual uh, anger that a lot of people have. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know that people should be angry. I mean, look, you know, we've – it's a business. We talked about that yesterday as well. You know, look, you can't sign everybody. You can't keep everybody. You just you, not everybody can be Steve Cohen and spend three hundred and fifty million dollars. It just doesn't work that way. You know, in a perfect world, the Red Sox would still have Mookie Betts and they would still have Xander Bogarts, and their payroll would be three hundred and twenty-five million dollars. But that's not reality. Well, yesterday. The Red Sox ownership group made its annual pilgrimage to spring training for the first full workout. They always come down there, and uh, they usually meet with the press. Well, John Henry declined to do that, so he sent Sam Kennedy, the CEO, there to do it. And here's where the disconnect comes. So as Kennedy is addressing the media— he said, look, uh, expectations for our fan base are high, and they should be high. We have no excuses. We have all the resources. Uh, we have the best fan base in baseball. It allows us to put a team out there that should be built to compete. And then he says, winter weekend was an example of that fact. The fact that we didn't deliver in 2022. We need to do a better job of communicating our message to the fans. 
basically saying the exact opposite of what John Henry said. There's no false narrative. That's the narrative because there was no narrative, so the fans just assume. And the fact that they got booed was because they didn't deliver and they should have gotten booed is basically what Sam Kennedy is saying. And he says we have to do a better job of communicating our message to the fans. And then then he takes one for the team. He says, that's on me. I'm the leader of this organization. And if we're not effectively communicating our strategy or our plan, that's on me. And we need to get better at it. You know, and – and I don't know if Sam Kennedy's right that if the, if they had come out, if the ownership group had come out and been maybe maybe he thinks that if they had come out and been, been honest and said, "Look, we can't spend Steve Cohen's money. We don't have that kind of money." Of course, they do, but they're not willing to do that. And I don't blame them because I think it's crazy what Steve Cohen's doing. Be that as it may, you know, I think the problem has been. Signing a guy from Tampa Bay to run your baseball operations. To have Heim Bloom in there, a guy who that is used to the bargain basement way of doing things in Tampa. When he comes into Boston and nobody really tells the fans what is going on from day one. From the moment Bloom got there, if Red Sox ownership had been honest with the fans and said, look, we can't afford everybody. And it has been our determination that we cannot afford to keep Mookie Betts with the other young players we have coming behind him, and we need to make some hard decisions. And our decision is, is this is the guy that we are going to move and try to use that to help rebuild our farm system and our young players. If they had been honest and said that from the start, would things have been better? I don't know. I'd like to think so. Because because here's the thing. Now we go into a couple of years later and we go into this whole thing that happened with Xander Bogarts where we have the ownership saying Xander Bogarts, you know, Sam Kennedy saying Xander Bogarts is our priority. We want to keep him in Boston. And yet then they lowball Xander Bogarts to the point where he gets pissed off and signs a deal with the San Diego Padres. Where's the disconnect there? Is it between the ownership group and Heim Bloom? Was this on Heim Bloom? Did he blow this? Or was this the marching orders that he was given by the ownership group? You know, and we don't have people in lockstep. And look, at the end of the day, They don't have to tell the fans everything. It'd be nice to know the direction that they're thinking and the, the you know the direction they want to move. But at the end of the day, it's their money. And I know you can say, well, no, it's our money too because we're the ones that that uh, uh, that buy the tickets and buy the merchandise and pay for everything. Look, I get all that. 
but they're not going to be totally transparent with the fans because if they are, then they're being totally transparent with their plans to the rest of the league, and then the rest of the league can adjust their thinking about players they might covet on Boston based on what they've been told, than what they've told the fans. Right? Am I wrong? But I think, you know, Red Sox fans have gotten used to, you know, look, they had all that success. They had Theo Epstein, and they had Charrington, and then they had Dombrowski. And, you know, Charrington and Dombrowski have their faults, and so does Theo Epstein. But they built these teams, and they were not afraid to go out and spend money. Now, some of that backfired if, you know, for instance, you know, the signing of Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford. We remember what a disaster that was. On paper, it looked like a great idea. You know, in actual, you know, point of fact, it didn't work out. But some of the, you know, big-name free agents that they've signed, it has worked out. J.D. Martinez was one of the best signings as a free agent in the history of the Red Sox. You know, a lot of the stuff that the Red Sox do, do works out. But now, with this new director of baseball operations in Bloom, they don't look at necessarily at those big names anymore. Because I don't think Bloom is wired that way. And it's not his fault. It's, it's how he grew up in the game. And I think that he underestimated... You know, how much, I don't know if pride's the right word, but the, the way that they approached some of these guys, the way that they approached Mookie Betts, and the way that they approached Xander Bogarts, this may have been blown opportunities, and it may be because the ownership group has gotten to a point where they're two hands off. And Sam Kennedy just said, look, we've got to communicate better. I don't think, I don't think John Henry gets it at all. But at the end of the day, that's okay as long as the people that he has designated to run everything for him get it. Because I don't think John Henry cares. I think John Henry looks at the bottom line. He looks at things that he can acquire that can get him more money. You know, there was a lot of hope around a lot of Red Sox fans and, uh, you know, that when there was talked at Liverpool, the, uh, the soccer team, that John Henry and the ownership group – uh, bought in the Premier League in England that it was going to be for sale. Everybody's like, oh, th- hallelujah. But no, now they've decided it's not for sale. You know, and now they've bought the Pittsburgh Penguins, and there was talk about them possibly trying to buy into an NBA team. You know, and you get to a point, if you're if you're John Henry, you're just at the head, you're, you're like the guy up, you're, you're on Mount Olympus. And you need your minor gods down here to do all the the grunt work. And if guys like Sam Kennedy and Tom Lerner and and uh, and Heim Bloom aren't communicating and aren't doing things the right way in Boston, and the other people that they have designated to take care of the situation in Liverpool and to take care of the situation in Pittsburgh, if they're not doing their jobs, you're going to have fan bases pissed off around the world. But there's the disconnect. And I, I don't think that, you know, at the end of the day, John Henry is the principal owner. But I really don't believe at the end of the day that he really is in touch 
with what goes on with the fan bases of the teams that he owns, and I'm not sure he even cares. As long as he continues to make the money, and make no mistake, the Boston Red Sox make John Henry and that ownership group a lot of money. And here's, you know, and, and everybody's talked about in spring training, we have to be better. That's the big, that's that's the catchphrase. That's what Alex Cora keeps saying, we have to be better. Well, hey, no kidding. You know, the other thing the Red Sox have to do, and we've talked about this a ton, is be healthy. But there's nothing Alex Cora can do about that. He can't make Chris Sale's arm and uh, James Paxton's arms be healthy. Right? He can't. Uh, he can't make Corey Kluber suddenly become the Corey Kluber he was with the Cleveland Indians. That's never that's the that ship has sailed. But you have to hope that if they stay healthy, they can be competitive, and some of these young kids can contribute. Um, one of the guys like Brian Bayo. By the way, a good sign yesterday. Bayo uh, started throwing again for the Red Sox. They shut him down last Friday. He felt some uh, soreness, tightness in his forearm. Um, Pitch yesterday, no issues. We'll see how he is today. Uh, if he comes back from that, okay, that's a good sign. Look, you know, Bayo's numbers overall weren't great last year, but when you look at what he did at the end of the season, he had five starts in September, and he had a 1.65 ERA, and he struck out 27 in 27 and a third innings. They can get that out of Brian Bayo going into this season. You know, he kind of got thrown to the wolves last year because of all the injuries. If what they have in Brian Bayo is what they had in September, that's that could be a game changer. And th- there is no coincidence, by the way, that Pedro Martinez is in Red Sox camp right now, and he is going to be working closely with Bayo. Um, he he did it in the Dominican Republic in the off season, and they're going to ask Pedro to come in periodically. I know they have a pitching coach, but. Make no mistake, when you have one of the greatest pitchers of all time in Pedro Martinez, who is a fellow countryman uh, with an opportunity to work with this kid, they're going to bring him in as often as they need to. Um, Another interesting thing that happened at Red Sox camp yesterday, Alex Verdugo showed me one thing yesterday. He's got balls. (laughs) Uh, You know, whether you love him or hate him, there's a lot of people that aren't big fans of Alex Verdugo. There's some things in his past that, that... Nothing that's ever been proven that, that, you know, that they they hold over his head. Um, uh, The fact that he replaced, essentially replaced Mookie Betts, you know, he'll never get over that. It's not his fault. It is what it is. But this is a guy, since since he's come to Boston, he look, he hit hit 308 in that shortened 2020 season because of the pandemic. He hit 289 the next year. He hit 280 last year. Um, You know, he's a pretty good outfielder. He's a better left fielder than a right fielder, but, you know, they have him in right field. Uh, he actually went up to the owners yesterday and told them that he wants to sign there. He wants to sign an extension. He wants a long-term deal, and he said that he's prepared to prove to them that he deserves it. I mean, usually when those kinds of conversations happen, it's because your agent has called the front office you know, and said, hey, my, my client you know, would like to stay. He actually went up to the owners and said, hey, hey, I want an extension. And I'll show you that I'm worth it. Good for him. Good for him. You know, I, I like Alex Verdugo. He's, he's not, look, he's not the, uh, 
the uh, classic slugger you'd like to see in one of your corner outfield positions. Um, but I like him. He's got he's had some big hits for the Red Sox, and uh, I like his I like his moxie. I'll tell you that. Forty five minutes past. Yeah, we're going to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 47 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the wake-up call. Got a few minutes left here on a Tuesday morning. A couple other baseball things. Steve Cohen met with the media yesterday um, and uh, wanted to caution the fans. (laughs) I love this. uh, That all the money that he spent doesn't necessarily mean uh, they're going to win the World Series this year. Well, no kidding. Uh, You know, uh, that's not exactly what Met fans wants, wants to hear. But after, you know, uh, their big spending spree this year, bringing in Justin Verlander and um, uh, Kodai Senga from Japan, uh, who they signed for $75 million for five years, Jose Quintana, David Robertson for that bullpen, uh, you know, in addition to keeping Nimmo and Diaz and McNeil and Adovino. Look, um, you'd like to think it means a World Series if you're a Mets fan, but at the end of the day, you know, it's it's about health, and he knows that. And uh, but but hell, I'll tell you what, uh, there is there isn't a fan base in Major League Baseball that would uh, that wouldn't trade places with with uh, New York Mets fans in a heartbeat. Uh, well, except for maybe Yankee fans. Uh, and look, there's a real possibility that it could be a a a Yankee Met World Series this year. It would be kind of like my idea of hell. <laughs> quite frankly, but um, wouldn't shock me if uh, we have uh, those two heavyweights in the uh, in the World Series this year. But uh, some signing notes: Michael Fomer signed a one-year contract with the Cubs. Uh, Fomer, who pitched for Detroit and Minnesota last year, was pretty good. Look, Fomer is a guy that came up as a starter and uh, uh, transitioned into the bullpen after some injuries and some spotty results as a starter. Uh, pitched to a 3.39 ERA in 67 appearances last year, and uh, pretty good signing. One year, four million dollars, um, 204 career games, 89 of those are starts. He's got 17 saves. He was a rookie of the year uh, for Detroit, if you remember, back in 2016. He was 11 and seven with a 3.06 ERA as a starter, and then it was kind of uh, all downhill after that. But uh, he signs a one-year deal with the uh, Chicago Cubs, the Chicago White Sox, across town. Signed Elvis Andrus to a one-year contract for three million bucks. A guy that a lot of Red Sox fans, including myself, uh, were hoping that uh, the Red Sox would be in on, uh, but the Red Sox have decided that Christian Arroyo is is the better way to go, and I'm okay with that too, I guess. But Andrus, one year, three million bucks, and he is going to become their starting second baseman. Uh, he finished the year with the with the White Sox last year. He hit 271, nine homers. Um, 28 RBIs in the 43 games with the White Sox after he was uh, cut by Oakland. Um, so he will be at second base, and uh, Tim Anderson, who had that torn ligament in his uh, middle finger last year, uh, is healthy. So uh, uh, he will be at shortstop, and uh, Elvis Andrus at second base. Now, Andrus has never played second base in a major league game, but he is a very, very athletic middle infielder. I think he's going to work out just fine, the same way Trevor Story did for the Red Sox. You know, people forget, you know, a lot of people want to talk about Trevor's story, about how he was supposed to be the shortstop this year, and his throwing arm isn't this, and his throwing arm isn't that. If you remember back to last year, a guy who hadn't played second base in the major leagues, some of the plays that he made were unbelievable. I mean, it's a guy that I'm firmly convinced if he had stayed on the field and hadn't gotten hurt last year, 
he would have won a gold glove at second base. That's how good he is. And it would not shock me to see Elvis Andrus have the same kind of success uh, with the White Sox this year. Uh, the Boston Bruins played a matinee yesterday, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I missed the first uh, period and a half because my wife and I were outside doing some uh, uh, some work in the yard on a beautiful day when we hit 65 degrees here. Um, but they beat the uh, Ottawa Senators yesterday 3-1. to one. David Pasternak, two goals. Uh, he now has 41 on the season. He is now just one goal behind Edmonton's Connor McDavid uh, for the league lead. Uh, Linus Olmark, 30 saves for the uh, the Bruins' fourth straight victory. Uh, Jake DeBrusque had the other goal for Boston, second goal that he scored since coming back from his injury. And uh, David Krejci played his 1,000th career game uh, in the NHL yesterday. He's, he's played his entire 16-year career in Boston. He's 38 years old now. Uh, some questions about how much longer he is going to play, uh, which is part of the reason why with the trade deadline coming up next Thursday, uh, there has been uh, some talk that the uh, the Bruins may be in the market for a younger defenseman, somebody that could fill in for Krejci uh, if he decides to retire. Uh, the Bruins will hit the road uh, for their next three games. They will be at Seattle on Thursday night. Then they will play Edmonton and Calgary uh, on that West Coast swing. Uh, but a good win for the Bruins yesterday. They Their record at home is just ridiculous. 24 wins, two losses, and three overtime losses. So 24-2-3 for the Bruins at home. Absolutely ridiculous. 91 points now. They are nine points clear of Carolina uh, for the highest number of points in the NHL. Unbelievable. Uh, the New York Islanders uh, with a win yesterday. Uh, they beat the Pittsburgh Penguins by a final of 4-2. to Bo Horvat and Anders Lee with goals two minutes apart in the third period uh, to break a 2-2 tie. Look, Pittsburgh finds itself in, a, in an odd spot. They're actually going to have to struggle. Uh, gonna, they've got some work to do if they are going to, uh, to make the playoffs. And part of the problem is their road record. They are a, a 500 team on the road. Pretty good at home, but they are a 500 team on the road, and uh, they've got some work to do if they're going to make the playoffs. And that's not a, that's not a spot that the, uh, the Penguins – are used to being in. As, as far as the Islanders go, they sit in fourth place in the Metropolitan Division. Right now, they would be the seventh seed if the play, playoffs were to begin today, but we still got a lot of work to do. We uh, we are 56 games into the season, so uh, still uh, 26 games to go before it's over. The Islanders uh, will return home to face Winnipeg on Wednesday, and uh, the Penguins uh, will host Edmonton uh, on Saturday. Edmonton, uh, pretty good team. Edmonton's 30-19-8, so uh, the Bruins are going to have their hands full on the road, too. Uh, the Seattle Kraken having a better season than no- most people thought uh, with 32 wins this year. A pretty good team at home. They got whacked uh, yesterday by the San Jose Sharks, a team that is not very good. Uh, but the Sharks uh, with the home victory yesterday against the Kraken, 4 nothing. Um, so uh, we talked yesterday, and I loved it when I saw this this morning. Uh, we talked yesterday about the NBA All-Star Game and about basically what a joke it is, you know, and uh, it, it's it's unwatchable, you know, when you've got a t- you know when you've got a game when the final score is 184 to 175. Um, what 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 warmed my heart was yesterday, Michael Malone, the Denver Nuggets coach, who was the coach of Team LeBron uh, in the All-Star Game. So this is a guy that coached in the game. 
He called the All-Star game, quote, the worst basketball game ever played. (laughs) He said, hey, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be part of a great weekend, great players, but this is the worst basketball game ever. And he said, look, um, he said they put on a show for the fans, but it's tough to sit through. He says, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> he's he's 100% right. You know, and he mentioned some players that showed some effort, guys like Joel Embiid and, uh, you know, Kyrie Irving, who actually showed that maybe they wanted to play a little defense. He said, but by and large, nobody plays defense. Uh, Stephen A. Smith, who I'm not a big fan of, uh, basically said the same thing yesterday, and he, you know, he applauded Malone for saying that. But it's right, you know. And the one thing Stephen A. Smith says that that he has a point on that by doing that, it shows a lack of respect for the fans, that you're taking the fans for granted. You're not really showing them an all-star basketball game. You're showing them who can go up and down the floor the fastest and who can dunk the hardest and who can shoot the most three-pointers. You're not really showing anybody playing defense. You're not showing people block shots. You're not showing people the way the game is supposed to be played. And he said it reeks of arrogance. I don't know whether arrogant is the right word, but, you know, here's the problem. Just like all all-star games. Now, again, the baseball, baseball to me is the one all-star game that is the purest of all of them. You know, it's the one where you, that game, with the exception of the fact there's a lot of subs and no pitcher pitches more than an inning, the game is played pretty much like it's played in the regular season. You can still see stolen bases. You, can, you, know, you still see the same strategy, you know, with, again, with the exception of the pitchers. But the rest of them are all a joke. The NHL, the NBA, the, the NFL was so bad they scrapped it and they're playing flag football and doing a skills competition, which was might have been even worse. Um, but he's right. He's, they're absolutely right. There's no, you know, but the problem is you have these games in the middle of the season. So you can't necessarily expect guys to, in the middle of the year, play basketball the way they play a regular season game because they can't afford to get hurt. The only way around that is to have the all-star game at the end of the year, kind of as a, a, you know, kind of like the NFL does, but do it, you know, do it as part, maybe as a lead into the NBA finals. And it just means the people in the NBA finals can't be involved, but it could be a great way to do it. If you move the game to the end of the year, maybe it'll be a different kind of game. Be nice. Be nice. That's going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back on Monday. I hope you all have a great week. I'm going to enjoy my 14-and-a-half-hour drive to New England and uh, and 14-and-a-half hours back on Sunday so I can be here on Monday morning. Uh, But enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the week. We'll see you then. Uh, It's Mary Chapin Carpenter's 65th birthday today. So on the way out, uh, she puts on a great concert, by the way. My wife and I saw her um, uh, at Infinity Hall in Connecticut uh, back a few years ago. Put on a great show. This is my wife's favorite song. It's Mary Chapin Carpenter. He thinks he'll keep her. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.